So, with that being said, this story about Joseph, I wanted to just briefly give you a reminder that when we're reading scripture and when we're reading about particular characters, when there's a storyline and a narrative going on in scripture, very often, at least for me, I kind of focus in on the main character of the story. And I tend to think it's, it's all about him or her. And I just think that when we are in God's word, we need to remember that this is all about him, right? This is all about the Lord. And what are we learning through the stories about him? So as we go through the story and we talk a lot about Joseph and his family, let's remember that what, what is this teaching us about the Lord Jesus? So um, the the this story is super popular. If any of you have uh, been raised in the church, you probably have heard this story a hundred times, and you've probably heard it preached on a hundred times. Uh, the, the famous picture is Joseph wearing this multicolored robe, and um, that was the symbol of you know favoritism, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So I just think that the reason this story is so popular is because it's so foundational to our faith. It tells us so much about God and, um, and, and his nature and his character. So this is so vital to believers because this is a story that if you can remember these main stories when you're evangelizing and discipling people, this, this story will be so useful to you because it does so much uh, informing of, of, of God and who he is. So, um, I pray that God imprints all these foundational truths on your hearts tonight. And with that being said, let's, let's get into it. So, Joseph, um, often in society today we see a lot of people, a lot of um, people who are born into prominent situations, who are born into um, advantageous situations with uh, families that are higher class or, uh, you know, make more money. And we tend to gravitate those, toward those people as our, our heroes. And a lot of times those type of people have more um, opportunity to succeed. So when we go through this scripture, we see a different theme, right? And, and it's really the theme that we see throughout all of the Bible, that God often uses lowly people to accomplish his plan, and that way he gets all the glory. So with that being said, I wanted to just give you a brief background of where Joseph was coming from. Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham, Father Abraham, and um, his father had two wives. Uh, I'm sorry, his great-grandfather had two wives. Um, they, Sarah abused Hagar after she had a child. That was a little bit of dysfunction going on there. Um, Isaac and Rebecca, who are Joseph's grandparents, uh, they had twin sons and basically played favorites and played them against each other. Um, also, Jacob, Joseph's father, uh, he deceived his brother out of his birthright and his blessing. Um, so there's a lot of dysfunction going on in this family. Jacob was tricked by his uncle into marrying another woman that he didn't want to marry. He ended up having to marry both women. And then both of those women, in turn, gave him maidservants, and he married them as well. So he had four wives. He had a sibling rivalry going on. And in Leviticus 18, it uh, speaks about how uh, taking sisters as wives is not a good thing. 
So Joseph, uh, one of Joseph's brothers, Reuben, ends up sleeping with one of his father's wives and committing some kind of sin. I don't even know how to explain. But um, two, of other, two of Joseph's other brothers, Simeon and Levi, they find out after one of their sisters gets raped that they're going to go into this village and cut down the whole town and they kill everybody in the entire, in the entire village. So that was where Joseph was coming from. This is um, his family, and I think a lot of times we tend to look at the stories and the people in Scripture and we think everything just kind of seemed easy for them. It worked out and it was just a clear path for them because God was with them. And although God is with Joseph, he didn't necessarily come from that very easygoing uh, life. So um, in Romans 8.28, we find that uh, the scripture reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So these major obstacles that Joseph is going to face, he knows God is going to be with him, and he's going to be able to overcome, overcome this. So this brings us to a, one of the first characteristics of God, and I'm going to just call it his providence, that God brings about his own ends. God uses all things, good and bad, to bring about, to bring about his plan to fruition. And this is exactly what God will do with these people that I've mentioned in moving forward with Joseph. So in chapter 37, right at the, right at the beginning, the, the story starts, and Joseph is 17 years old. Uh, he and his family live in the land of Canaan, also known as the Promised Land, the land of Israel, where they are shepherds. And we find out immediately some more family dysfunction that's going on with his family. That Jacob, Joseph's father, loves him the most. Now Joseph is the 11th son. So he, he not, that, not that any parent should play favorites. I have three kids and one on the way. But um, I would never want to play favorites with any of, my, any of my kids. But typically in this setting, Reuben, the firstborn, if anybody should be the favorite, it, would, it should be him. Because he would be the one to take the inheritance, to, to take over the family, so to speak. But it's Joseph, who's number 11 in line, who gets the, gets the favoritism from his father. So, uh, and the reason in Scripture that it's told to us that why that Joseph is the favorite is because he was the son that was born to Jacob in his old age. I also deduce that Jacob, uh, Joseph was the firstborn from Rachel. Rachel was the one who he really wanted to marry when he got deceived. And I think that might have also had something to do with it, that this was the woman that he really, truly loved. That was who he wanted to be his wife. And this was the first son that came from her. So as a sign of the favoritism, Joseph gets the famous robe of many colors. And as a result, his brothers hate him. So also, um, his brothers are out in the field one day, and Joseph apparently gives a bad report to his father about whatever these older brothers were doing out in the field. And it says after that that they hated him even more. So, and if, if, if that wasn't enough, Joseph then has two dreams, and he decides to share these dreams with his brothers. 
And both dreams basically involve uh, the rest of his family symbolically bowing down to him. And now his brothers, you can imagine, immediately were like, you know, who are you? You're the, you're the 11th in line. And I, I kind of figured that if Joseph was 17 at this time, his older brothers were probably in their mid-30s, maybe even pushing 40. And here's this little boy saying, yeah, you guys are going to you know, bow down to me. And he even says in the second dream that his parents will end up bowing down to him. And his father, Jacob, actually rebukes him. But uh, once again, this even increases the hatred even more from his brothers. So um, with, with, with all that animosity kind of put aside, this is a key part to the story, the, the dreaming part, and it will come back uh, a little bit later. But the key part here is that Joseph is a prophet, right? Joseph is a prophet, and God is speaking to him through dreams. And so this is God's gift to him. He's given all of us, all believers, gifts. And this is one that Joseph has, and we'll see that come back a little bit later in the story. Um, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, we see, and I'll just read it to you, that he, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I just love that verse there, because it's talking about God has given these, these types of people with certain gifting to us, for what? to equip the saints, right, to equip the believers, the people, to do the ministry for building up the body. And that's what it's really all about. So I would ask you a question. With your gifts, do you flaunt them or do you use them in humility? Because often when we're gifted in certain, re in certain areas, we can, maybe not even consciously, but we can kind of boast about them. We highlight them to people so that they see we're good at something. And um, Joseph seems, although it doesn't say it in Scripture, he does seem to kind of have a little bit of arrogance as he approaches his brothers, and this fuels their hatred even more. So having gifts from the Lord is, is in fact, a beautiful thing, and it's uh, critical that we exercise those gifts that God has given us with humility and love so that God gets the glory and not ourselves. So after that, uh, Joseph's brothers are out pasturing the flocks, and Jacob sends him out to basically go and spy on them and report back. When Joseph is approaching his brothers, they see him from a distance, and they start mocking him, saying, oh, here comes this dreamer. And I often thought, how, how often do enemies and, and Satan try to get at us by mocking the very gifts that God has given us? I know that as a believer out in the world, there's been plenty of times where I've been mocked for what I believe and for the gifting that God has given me. So um, his brothers come up with this great plan that they're just going to murder him and they're going to cover up Joseph's death with a lie and they're going to say that a wild animal just ate him. So uh, in steps the older brother, Reuben, saying, no, 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 let's, let's spare his life, right? Let's not, let's not kill him. And I, I believe that even this, what seems like a Reuben trying to save his life, I, I think that this is even still a selfish motive here that, because it says that later on he was going to deliver Joseph back to his father. And now Reuben was the one who had committed adultery with his, one of his father's wives already. So 
this would have been a perfect opportunity for him to get back in good graces with his dad by bringing back Joseph and saying, you know, I, I saved him. So they, uh, they end up stripping Joseph of his robe, which was the symbol of his, his father's love. They end up throwing him into a pit. And then what do they do next? They sit down and have lunch. I was like, wow, well, that's, a, that's amazing. They just were showing zero remorse for their actions that they just were going to sit down and have a nice little bite to eat. And uh, as they're sitting there eating, they see some Ishmaelite traders walking by. And Judah, one of the other brothers, sees the opportunity to profit. And he convinces his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. They, let's not kill him. Let's you know, make a little money off of this. And apparently, I guess the older brother Reuben had wandered off because it says when he comes back, Joseph was already sold and he was gone. So his plan is foiled, and he ends up tearing his robe. And this was, you know, a common thing that you see throughout Scripture um, when the Pharisees accused, when Jesus was claiming to be the, the Son of God, the Pharisees ripped him because they thought it was, he was speaking blasphemy. And um, this, this tearing of the robe, this is the first time we actually see it in Scripture ever. So... Um, just in case nobody knows, that was kind of a symbol of mourning or grief or loss that they would tear at their, their heart, basically. Uh, it was just an outward expression of that. So, so they end up sticking to the original plan, and they dip uh, Joseph's robe in goat's blood and deceive their father, Jacob. And um, Jacob, when, he, when they returned to him, they, they find out, you know, they break the news to him, say he's dead, show him the robe. And Jacob tears his robe, except this time it's with true mourning and true grief that he does it. And I thought the irony here is, is kind of funny. If you're familiar with what Jacob did and how he deceived his father, he went in with goat skins and wearing his brother's clothing to deceive his father to give him the blessing. And now here he is being deceived by goat's blood on his son's clothing. I just thought that was a little interesting uh, piece. But, so meanwhile, Joseph gets taken into Egypt where he is sold to a man named Potiphar who is the captain of the guard, an officer of Pharaoh. So just in that first chapter there, what do we see? We see a lot of the depravity of man, the evilness. Uh, we see favoritism, boasting, schemes, slavery, pride. We see all this evil that mankind is capable of, that these, these men would sell their own brother into slavery out of hatred for him. We also see God allowing his prophet, Joseph, to be put through trials. And we see a young teenage shepherd boy who's the 11th in line who's going to be used mightily by God. So as we move on, chapter 38 is kind of a, a side story, so we move on to chapter 39 where he is purchased by Potiphar. Um, right in the beginning, it says in verse 2, the Lord is with him and grants him success. And apparently it was enough success that Joseph, as a, as a servant, gets to live in Potiphar's home. So in, in verse 3, we see Potiphar sees that, you know, in, in your scriptures it'll say the Lord, right? Capital L-O-R-D, which is the proper name for God, Yahweh, and we see that Potiphar recognizes that Yahweh, 
right? Now, he's talking specifically about the, their God. He's not talking about a general God. He's talking about specifically Yahweh, that he sees that Yahweh is with him and granting Joseph the success. And I just thought, that, that's pretty amazing, right? That Joseph's light is shining so strongly from whatever he is doing that Potiphar, who is a man whose, the definition of Potiphar's actual name refers to an Egyptian god, a man who ranks extremely high in a pagan nation makes Joseph in charge of his entire household because he sees that Yahweh has blessed him. I just thought, wow, that, that's pretty awesome. And I, it made me think, is that how my light is shining? Is that how your light is shining? That so vibrantly that unbelievers who are around you acknowledge it and, in, and then in turn attribute it to God? So in, in Matthew 5, verse 16, um, we see, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Joseph um, becomes an overseer of Potiphar's house, and the Lord blesses all he does, in, it says, in house and field, right? So that's just financially. Everything is just going great. So right then, just as everything seems to be looking up for Joseph, another trial comes along. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, right? She keeps trying to grab at him, telling him, come lie with me. And he won't have any part of it. And um, Pastor Matt actually pointed this out to me earlier in the week, that how often it is that the enemy will use sexual temptation try to, in order to try to steal our peace, our joy, uh, and kill our testimony, most importantly. So, and um, as we saw earlier, many of Joseph's family had already fallen victim to these, these very sins. But Joseph remains loyal. He remains trustworthy. And he doesn't indulge. He won't do this wicked thing to Potiphar or God, which I thought was really important. He won't do this to the man who has given him so much. And he, most importantly, won't do it to his God. He will not give in to it. In verse 9, in the second part of um, verse 9, we see that Joseph actually testifies to Potiphar's wife while he's rejecting her. Right? So he's saying, you know, I'm not going to do this to God. No way. Like, he's not just saying, no, 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 just, you know, get away from me. And I thought, when, when people ask us to engage in sin, do we just simply say no? Or do we look at that as an opportunity to testify of why we're not joining in with that. And I thought that was um, pretty impressive what he was doing there as a young man, only at, at this point still maybe 17, 18 years old. But sure enough, his wife catches him one day by herself, and she grabs him by the, by the garment, and he literally runs out of his, of his shirt, his clothing, and he leaves it behind with her. And I thought, man, what a... What a beautiful depiction of how we need to treat our sin, right? Like to flee from it so hard that you're just going to shake it off and literally run out of it, right? And in Colossians verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3 verse 5, we see, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then also in 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And I, um, was, when I was looking at these verses, another a quote from uh, John Owen came up, and I just I loved it. It says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease nor a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And now, obviously, that verse there, you know, we know that we have deliverance from sin through Christ. We don't have to literally put, kill our own sin in that sense. Christ has done that for us. But this is talking about, you know, the temptations of, of sin that we have to battle against, putting to death um, those things that, that tempt us. So Potiphar's wife uh, now realizes that she can't have him. So she decides to flip it on him, and she basically accuses Joseph of rape. So this imaginally doesn't sit right with Potiphar when he comes home and he realizes that, um, that there, there might be something going on here. I think that possibly Potiphar knew his wife and knew that maybe she was lying because this would have been a sin that was punishable by death, especially to somebody as high-ranked as Potiphar. He could have easily killed Joseph, but he doesn't. He puts Joseph in prison. And in verse 21, this is the best, the best little nugget in this whole chapter here. It says, but the Lord was with him. And it's the second time we actually see it in this chapter. And it was such a, a comforting reassurance to, to Joseph in a time of trouble, right? That when we're going through things in our life that just look, look horrible, temptations, sin, um, or when we're being wrongfully accused of something, we can have this assurance that God is with us. So this is a place where we can really glean that personal promise to ourselves that, that the Lord is with us. And not only, it says, not only is he with him, but that he also brings steadfast love. And I thought, wow, that's such a, one of those words that I think we hear a lot, but we really, do we really know what it means? steadfast. It could also be meaning loyal, faithful, devoted, unwavering, committed, committed, dedicated, firm, reliable, constant, dependable. That's what kind of love that God is bringing to Joseph in this time. So this is the type of love when we're faced with, this is the type of love that we need when we are faced with life's challenges. This is the type of love that as believers, we need to be showing in all of our relationships, whether it's with our spouse, our children, our friends, or even our enemies. And, and, and most importantly, to the Lord. This is the type of love that we need to be showing him. So obviously, God's love is perfect and ours isn't. But God does call us to be holy. <clears throat> Excuse me. He does call us to be holy and set apart. And when we're partaking in sinful things, th things of the world, this can cause us to be the complete opposite of steadfast. So the, the third action, um, there's a third action that God took at this point, that he gives him favor with the prison keeper. So Joseph ends up going back into prison, and again, so, he, he's blessed so much and get, is given so much favor here that just like in Potiphar's household, he gets put in charge of the entire prison. So the, the jailkeeper, it said, 
didn't even pay attention to anything that was put in charge that Joseph was in charge of because Joseph was that trustworthy that everything he was doing was just spot on. And I just thought this was so crazy too. So you have a second time here that Joseph is affecting somebody by being blessed by God and God is seeing that in him so much that he puts a Hebrew in charge, a pretty young Hebrew at this point, probably in his early 20s, he puts him in charge of the entire prison. And as a prisoner, he is one of the prisoners. So, but again, in verse 23, it's made clear why uh, Joseph succeeds. It's because the Lord is with him. So we see again in this second chapter, so to speak here, that the enemy will seek to destroy our testimonies in areas of weakness, uh, that God is with us through all of our trials, and he steadfastly loves us through it all. And he gives favor to, to glorify his own name. So, uh, moving on to chapters 40 to 42, uh, it says some time passes, and while Joseph is in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker get put in prison. They end up committing some offense, ending up in the same prison with Joseph. And both of these men have dreams one evening that... Um, and Joseph says, using his gift that God has given him, that he's going to interpret the dream. So Joseph ends up interpreting both dreams. One is favorable, one isn't. He attempts to, at this time also, uh, the one that he gave the favorable interpretation to, he tries to go to this man and say, hey, when you get out of here, remember me. When you're in front of Pharaoh, remember me and, and get me out of here. I've been wrongfully accused. I, I shouldn't be here. So both, in, both interpretations end up coming true. The cupbearer is restored to his position, and the baker is hanged. So, uh, and what happens is the cupbearer forgets about Joseph. He doesn't remember to, to mention him at all. And I just thought, this could have been such a discouraging time for Joseph. And it, it may have been, because he ended up spending another two years in prison at this point. But I just thought, Joseph was trying so hard to put his trust in this man and say, Get me out of here. Help me. Get me out of here. He, but God's timing wasn't, it wasn't the right moment yet. And as we see two years later, um, Pharaoh ends up having a couple of dreams. And at this point, um, the cupbearer remembers Joseph, that there was this man that, that could interpret dreams because Pharaoh calls in all of his wise men and nobody can interpret the dreams. And both dreams were, were, were similar. One is there's a bunch of healthy cows that get eaten by a bunch of thin, unhealthy cows. And then there's some grains of corn that get eaten by um, some, some just nasty-looking corn. And so Joseph comes in, and he decides that he, he's going to be able to interpret this. And he says to Pharaoh, no, God is going to give you the interpretation. So he interprets a dream that... For seven years, there's going to be a harvest. There's going to be a plentiful harvest that is just full of abundance. And that there's going to be then seven years of famine that is going to be so horrible. So Joseph comes up with a plan to Pharaoh that he will um, basically make a tax where they're going to take a fifth of all of the produce in the times of plenty. And they're going to put it aside for, for the times of famine. So Pharaoh being... Um, very pleased with this in chapter 41, verse 38 and 39. He says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. 
And for the third time, we see a pagan unbeliever acknowledging the Lord through Joseph. He acknowledges the favor and the anointing, but more so that God's plan, uh, God's plan is bringing this all to pass, really with nothing to do with Joseph. So for the third time, Joseph is put into the second highest position in this system where he is. And earlier he was the head of Potiphar's household. He was the head of the prison. Now he's basically the head of the entire country of Egypt. So he immediately goes to work, stores up a bunch of food. And there's so much abundance that they stop measuring how much they have. They stop even keeping count of it. So seven years goes by and the famine begins. And people from all over the earth, it says, start to come and buy food. And this includes Joseph's ten older brothers. So his ten brothers are sent, and Benjamin, who is Joseph's younger brother, who was from the same mother, he stays back. Which you can kind of see that this is probably, now Benjamin is now the new favorite. He gets to stay home with dad as all the other brothers are sent out to do the work. So when they come before Joseph, they don't recognize him, and they bow down before him, which fulfills his dreams from earlier in the story. And they come begging for food, and Joseph recognizes them. And he starts talking harshly to them. He accuses them of being spies, and he puts, in, uh, puts into motion a plan to test them. He tells them that they need to come back with their younger brother. And if they don't, then they're, they're not going to get any more food, and they're going to be cut off. So he wants to see if they're telling the truth. So his brothers start talking, saying that this is retribution for what we did to our brother Joseph. And um, they basically admit their guilt. They don't think that Joseph can really understand them, but he can. And so um, this is 10 plus years later that the first thing that the brothers are thinking about is this guilt and shame that they have had over this action, where Joseph, he, he just doesn't even seem to dwell on it in the past at all. So he sees how the Lord has been using him through these trials for his purposes. Joseph, um, he understands, when he understands them, it says he weeps, he starts crying, he almost can't contain himself in front of them. So he gives them food, he sends them back home, and he puts their money back in their, their sacks, and the brothers just freak out when they find out that the money's there. They're thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to accuse us of stealing. We didn't pay them. So they, they go home, they tell their father what's going on, and they say, he wants us to bring Benjamin back to prove that we're not liars. And Jacob just won't have it. He says, there's no way you're sending him back. So some time goes on. All their food is tapped out at this point, and they need to go back. So they say, listen, we're not going back without Benjamin. And the, one of the sons, Judah, makes a pledge to his father and says, listen, I will, I will vow that I'm going to bring him back safely. And then Joseph, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob gives in and basically uh, lets Benjamin go. So when they get back to Egypt, Joseph has a feast prepared. The brothers think that it's a setup. Um, they confess about the money to the steward of the house. And this is another little beautiful nugget that you find in there that the steward says, have no fear that God gave them back their money. So I just thought there's, there's two things there, that the brothers are showing change by this confession of, their, of, of, of guilt. 
and also that it appears that the steward of the household is a believer because Joseph is affecting even him now so much that he says, nope, God gave you back that money. So Joseph arrives at the feast, he sees Benjamin, and again, he has to leave the room because he's just basically in tears. Um, it says, his compassion grew warm for his brother. I thought that was such a beautiful little phrase that he was just so happy to see his brother. And I think he was probably more relieved to see that his brother was alive rather than just happy to see him. Possibly thinking that he could have been facing the same fate as, as he did. So throughout all these encounters with Joseph's brothers, uh, Joseph really could have paid them back big time. I mean, he was in a position to just pour out full vengeance on them, and, but he doesn't. And besides a little bit of rough talking that he gives them and testing, Joseph gives a pretty good example of how we're to repay evil. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Joseph provides food. He returns them their money. He gives them a private feast. And the brothers are just pretty much amazed at what's going on here. And after the feast, they're sent home again with their food and their money and one more test. This time, Joseph puts his cup in Benjamin's bag. And after they leave, he sends his steward and says, go follow them. And when, once they get a little bit down the road, capture them, accuse them of stealing, and, and bring them back. So when they find it, all the brothers are ready to go back uh, to Egypt. And the steward tells them, you're all free to go. It's only him that we want. It's only Benjamin. So Judah, knowing he had already made a pledge to his father, steps in and says, listen, you, you take me instead. He, he basically pleads for his brother's freedom, and he, just, he knows that he can't go back without, without Benjamin. So he explains that whole situation, how his father will die if he doesn't go back with Benjamin. And I thought, what a great example there of Christ, right? And ironically enough, Jesus comes from the line of Judah, Right? So the, Judah, the, the 12 brothers are the 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus comes from the direct lineage of Judah. And I thought, here you have a man, Judah, who is willing to lay down his own life, take his brother's place, pay the penalty, right, and pass on the freedom of guilt to his brother. And then there's no trespasses committed. So one goes free and the other pays the price for it. So... The brothers at this point have basically passed the final test. Joseph recreated this same exact situation that Benjamin would be put in a spot where he would have to serve a lifetime of slavery. And I just thought, man, this is a, they, could have, they could have literally done the exact same thing that they did to Joseph right here. They could have just said, okay, yeah, you caught him with the cup, take him. They could have headed back home, and they could have been like, sorry, Dad, he's gone. And now that would have been more advantageous for them, so to speak, but, but they don't. They, they all go back. They plead for his life, and they, this is showing that they've changed. They do the exact opposite, right, and they fight for his freedom. So at this point, Joseph can no longer contain himself, and he bursts out crying in front of them. He reveals himself to his brothers, and they're just completely speechless. So Joseph comforts them by saying, 
do not be upset with yourselves for selling me. I just thought, how could he say that? I mean, this is, this is roughly 20 years later that he's been ripped from his family, put in prison, was a slave, and here's the guys who are responsible for it, but his response is, don't be upset with yourselves for selling me. And this is really showing that Joseph had an awareness of God's bigger plan through all these trials. That he saw, and in the second part of that verse, he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. And in verse 8, he even says, it wasn't even you who sent me here, but God. So God just didn't turn this bad situation and turn it around for his glory, but he actually ordained it to happen. He says, God, God sent me here, not you guys. So God was the one who was, like I said earlier, his providence. He uses trials, he uses hard times in our lives to accomplish his greater purpose. So I would ask you, what situations have you gone through that looked horrible and didn't go exactly the way that you had hoped and planned, and did you say to yourself, why, why would God be putting me through this? Why, this doesn't seem loving, this doesn't seem good, this can't be good. But in this case, Joseph gets to see the end. He gets to see God's plan come to an end. And the tricky part here is that sometimes we don't. Sometimes we, we don't get to see why God lets things happen to us in certain ways. But we can trust that the Lord is using all of the situations in our life to work, work them out for his glory. So those are definitely the hardest things to, to, uh, to, 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 to grasp at times. And as Pastor Matt said earlier in the, the scripture in Isaiah, he is turning ashes into something beautiful. And you may be going through a situation like that now where you're wondering, God, why would God let something happen to you? But I would encourage you to have the perspective of Joseph, right? Trust that the Lord is working something out and that he is going to bring about good from it. So at this point, Joseph sends for his family, the rest of his family, to come and live with them in Egypt, that he'll take care of them. He continues to build up wealth, accumulating uh, land and money for the nation of Egypt, and his family settles in the land of Goshen, which is uh, the prime area for shepherding, where they would uh, become fruitful and multiply. And they, when they came into Egypt, there were 70 of them in Jacob's family. 430 years later, the time of Moses, when they leave Egypt, there's over 2 million of them. So they were definitely fruitful and were multiplying. <laughs> um, just on a little side note there, I thought that the land of Egypt seems to be getting all the blessing here as Joseph accumulates all this wealth and prosperity for them. Fast forward that 430 years later when the Israelites leave Egypt, they completely plunder Egypt and they take it all. They take it all back. So even there you see God's plan, right? He had this plan of, oh, I'm going to build up the wealth like this, but don't worry, they're all going to get it back. Uh, they're all going to get it back later. So we come to chapter 50, which is the conclusion of the story. Hopefully I make it through. I'm probably way over time here. I'm okay. Um, but in chapter 50, this brings us to the end of Joseph's story. His, his father passes away, 
And immediately after, his brothers are like, oh no, he's going he's gonna to finally pour out wrath on us. So they, they basically send him a fake message and said, uh, this is what your dad said to tell you, that your father has given this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And here, here's Joseph's response. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I just thought, what, what a Christ-like response that this young man has to his brothers. And not only was his response so Christ-like, but when you look at his whole life, you see such a, a clear um, comparison to Jesus that he was dearly loved by his father. He was the shepherd of his father's sheep. He was hated by his brothers, stripped of his clothing, sold and betrayed. He was falsely accused. He was bound in chains. He was condemned with criminals. And after suffering, he was exalted. And he started his public ministry at the age of 30. He wept for his brothers. He forgave those who wronged him. And he saved them from death. Men harmed him, but God turned it around for good. And as we see the similarities in Jesus and Joseph, we also see God's nature and qualities revealed through the whole story. His forgiveness to those who wrong him. His reconciliation in broken relationships. His redemption in saving lives. And his providence in completing his plan. So in the last few verses, I, I really believe in chapter 50, you can really see the clearest picture of the gospel story. The brothers represent sinners, us. And they're terrified at what might happen to them because of their sin. So they confess, they repent, they plead with their master for mercy. And Joseph, who's in the place of Jesus, he forgives them. He reassures them of their safety and he pardons them. And in all of this, we really find the heart of God. His purposes are to save many lives, lives of people who will bring him praise, honor, worship, and love. And he commissions his believers to be his messengers in carrying that message. So if you are a believer here tonight, then you have a mission. And your mission is to go out and be the hands and feet of Christ and deliver his message of forgiveness of sins by faith through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But if you're not a believer here tonight, I hope that you're feeling the weight of your sin. And I hope that you fall down like the brothers do at the feet of your master, the mighty savior, and plead for your life. Turn from your sin, place your faith in Jesus Christ, and put your hope in the one who has paid it all. And be free. Amen? Let's close in prayer.